Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you're joining us today. Welcome to today's webinar on the health response to COVID. Um, my name is Francesca Bastagli, Director of the Equity and Social Policy Program at ODI, and I have the great honor of chairing today's discussion. We're meeting today uh, two years, well, over two years now into the crisis that has really laid bare the frailties and inequities of systems and the social contract. And perhaps this is no, no way more evident than in the health response to COVID-19, which is characterized by major inequalities in the production and distribution of, of vaccines in particular. As we speak today, while some countries have started adjusting to a new normal, um, in many other countries, millions have yet to receive a vaccine. And this despite important initiatives and, and very specific targets and goals, uh, domestic and international, and despite the G20 leaders, so the, 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 the leaders of wealthier countries express support for many of these initiatives. So in today's webinar, we seek really to do two things. One is to better understand the health response initiatives to date, uh, particularly efforts of the G20 and G20 member countries, and what has and hasn't worked, where we've seen progress and, and where less so. Um, and the second thing is really to discuss together, identify what are some of the options and opportunities moving forward to help ensure that we, that well, at the minimum, inequalities are not replicated going forwards as therapeutics become more widely available, but also that we correct course uh, in light also of potential and, and expected future uh, crises and, and pandemics. Today's discussion draws on recent work by, by colleagues at Christian Aid and in ODI that looks at, uh, particularly at the G20 country initiatives so far to date since the onset of, of COVID-19, covering issues of financing, of vaccine production and distribution, and the question of the support for sharing of intellectual property and the free trade of medical goods. If you haven't already done so, um, I invite you to please look at the reports that have come out in the last few days. There's an uh, ODI briefing by Emma Saman, who, who is one of our speakers today, on advancing an equitable G20 health response to COVID. This is work done jointly with Christian Aid, particularly Oliver Pierce, also online, I believe, today. Um, and also Christian Aid's index that was just published, so actually scoring and ranking uh, G20 country efforts, drawing on the indicators and data that are um, that are that are uh, sort of proposed and analyzed in, in Emma's piece. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers, and I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be welcoming them all today. Uh, first of all, Emma Saman, Research Associate at ODI, who will be setting the scene for today's discussion. We also have from the Human Sciences Research Council in South Africa, Olive Shisana, welcome. Agnes Suka from the uh, French Development Agency, she's Director of Health and Social Protection. Kevin Watkins, our former boss and professor of development practice at the London School of Economics now. And from Chatham House, Rob Yates, uh, the executive director of the Center for Universal Health. We also are honored to welcome um, Honorable Dr. John Santamu, the chair of Christian AIDS uh, board, who will be delivering closing remarks at the end of this uh, webinar. Welcome to all of you, and thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak today with us. Uh, to the audience, just a reminder that this is a, you know, we want this to be a participatory discussion. Please do submit your questions uh, in the chat box below. We will be weaving into the discussion and addressing them as best, best we can, so please do 
participate directly. And also for those of you that are so inclined, if you wish to take to Twitter, uh, do use the um, ODI handle that's at ODI underscore global alongside the hashtag vaccine equity. Enough from me, I will now hand over to Emma. Emma, over to you to, to set the scene for today's discussion. Wonderful, thanks very much, Francesca. Uh, let me just share with you the presentation. So it's a huge pleasure for me to be here today and to introduce our, our topic. As, as Francesca just mentioned, over the past year, we've seen all too clearly the consequences of the inequitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, tests, and treatments. Uh, the WHO Director General has described inequitable vaccine access as a catastrophic moral failure, quote unquote, and richer countries have been repeatedly singled out for actions that appear to further their own domestic interests framed very narrowly at the expense of people living uh, in other countries in the global public good. The latest data very much reinforce this point. They, they show that while close to 80% of the population in high and upper middle income countries have received at least one vaccination dose against COVID-19, the comparable figure for low income countries is under 15%. It follows from that that the WHO target of vaccinating 70% of people in all countries by September of this year is very unlikely to be met, and despite the public endorsement of the G20. In our new policy brief, I look through a measurement lens at G20 countries' efforts to respond to the global shortage of vaccines, tests, and treatments. So we undertook this exercise for several reasons. Firstly, to identify the policy areas that, that matter the most, as well as the data and the indicators that seem best suited for monitoring purposes. Secondly, to facilitate a better understanding of G20 country policy responses to COVID-19, uh, as well as to look at where they fall short. And thirdly, to reveal variations in G20 country performance, as well as gaps between what countries have done and what they could do. All of this with the ultimate aim of charting a more equitable path forwards. So let me turn to the, the data. This exercise led to a proposal of nine indicators in three dimensions covering financing, vaccines, uh, both excess vaccine procurement and the redistribution of any surplus, and the promotion of intellectual property rights and medical exports. I won't go into the details of the indicators here, but you can see them in the brief and the corresponding data set is also available online. In, in the brief, we provide country scores for each dimension and look at options for composite index construction, but we stop short at presenting a definitive aggregation or ranking. Rather, we've opted to make our data available for others to take decisions over the relative importance of the dimensions and how to aggregate them. And as we'll hear from Dr. Santamu later in this event, ChristianAid has just launched an index based on our data, which assigns a relatively high weight to the dimension containing intellectual property sharing based on their judgment that this aspect matters most to an equitable health response. While this proposal offers a partial snapshot on what G20 countries have contributed and their shortcomings, I'd also like to highlight a few important limitations. 
So the first of these is we needed to include indicators that are relevant to most or all G20 countries, which means that we necessarily exclude some important aspects, notably vaccine exports, which, which only apply to a subset of the G20. Secondly, we're lacking systematic data on some critical aspects of health equity, such as import, uh, support to regionally dispersed vaccine manufacturing, which I'm, I'm sure we'll be discussing further today. Third, and perhaps most importantly, giving, given our intention in looking at differences between countries, we do not include measures of actions that no member countries opted to take. And here, I'd like to emphasize the deals with that Western leaders struck with pharmaceutical companies, which are said to have omitted any provisions that would have compelled the companies to share vaccines, knowledge, and patents. And I've included here a quote from a recent New York Times analysis, which makes this point compellingly. It reads, by partnering with drug companies, Western leaders bought their way to the front of the line, but they also ignored years of warnings and explicit calls from the WHO to include contract language that would have guaranteed doses for poor countries or encouraged companies to share their knowledge in the patents they control. Uh, these limitations notwithstanding, our hope is that the systematic documentation of country responses can spur monitoring efforts and provide a useful resource for policymakers and campaigners. And I very much look forward to hearing the other panelists and audience perspectives on G20 activity date, and crucially, the actions that these countries could take moving forwards to advance equity in the COVID health response. So thank you very much. Over to you, Francesca. Thank you, Emma, for, for well, first of all, for, for all the work behind this. So actually trying to track, um, you know, progress against some of the commitments made uh, and, and starting to, to, to shed light on, on, on what has worked, what hasn't worked um, and where we need to be focusing more going forward. Um, I just wanted to do a quick check. I think Olive um, Shisana is not yet with us, which is fine. We will go ahead, but just wanted to check whether she is somewhere in the background. No, she's not online. That's fine. I will turn to then Agnes first over to you. Thank you, Agnes, for, for joining us. We had a um, Following on to on from some of the points already that Emma has raised, uh, there there's a discussion around in in the initiatives taken to date uh, as part of the overall G20 effort. Uh, questions around what are some of the main obstacles to a more equitable vaccine distribution, uh, and one of the drivers being um, is it you know the vaccine pillar is is financing one of the one of the chief factors uh, driving um, the, the lack of progress hoped. Uh, we know the vaccine pillar of ACTA is one that is fully funded, while others focused on, on tests, treatments, and health system strengthening have been relatively neglected. To what extent is a lack of financing a challenge to advancing vaccine equity in, in your view? Um, and, and where or how has it fallen short, Agnes? Thank you. Um, certainly lack of money has not been the chief obstacle to vaccine distribution during this crisis. Extraordinary amounts of funding have been mobilized at both country, regional and international level, including by international financial institutions such as the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, but also regional development banks such as Afrexin Bank that is funding the AVAT mechanism of the EU with the support of several European banks, including uh, my agency, the France Development Agencies. 
And, and countries like South Africa, for example, have mobilized domestic funding in large amounts voted by parliaments to order vaccines through COVAX. Yet they only received a fraction of, of what they ordered. And when we look at the global spending on medicines, in, in, in 2019, it was $1.25 trillion. Um, and it's been growing at an annual growth of 3 to 6%, which is faster uh, than, uh, than economic growth. So again, it, it was not a money issue. In fact, one can say that part of the problem is to characterize it as a money issue and to focus on the wrong problem while the real issue is the lack of regional and global mechanism to address global market failures. The core issue is reform of institutions. The core issue is building appropriate financing mechanism for regional and global common goods. And, and global health institutions typically and too often confuse financing with funding. And they confuse their own replenishments with the broader financing picture at country level. Financing is not solely about having money in a pot somewhere. It is about building institutions that allow funding to flow to the right kind of activities at the right time, and particularly at the time of crisis. So when you ask me what we have learned and how should we reform, I, I would tend to say that we've learned five lessons. The first one, we need to do a much better job at unbundling issues. Not all problems are funding problems. In the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, much more binding obstacles were one, pooled procurement, legal liability and indemnification clauses, the hidden defect uh, clauses, failure of regulation and sovereignty space, and disagreements on allocation formula within the, within the, the, the global uh, pooling. Second is responding to a crisis requires financing, not funding. The financing response to the COVID-19 crisis has been remarkable. Vaccines should be funded in the same way. Countries have mobilized immense amounts of funding for, um, for uh, the response to this crisis. Further reforms will need to make sure that any mechanism to fund an emergency response to a global health crisis such as ensuring availability of vaccine, is integrated in a strong financial institution that can mobilize all financing instruments, sovereign and non-sovereign lending, credit lines, guarantees, grants, etc., to fund the response. And I will use um, the words of President Macron, whatever the cost, quoi qu'il en coûte. Financial credibility and big purse governments and institutions, they matter in times of crisis. We need to be, have access to very large amounts of funding. Third is the global centralization of all functions, selection of products, uh, creating a portfolio of vaccines, funding, procurement, and distribution does not work in time of crisis. One single mechanism at global level cannot handle all these functions for all countries in the world. This is almost hubris. Resilient systems, we know from experience and from a lot of studies, they are pluralistic and multipolar, like the world today. Decentralization and construction of sovereign space of production of medical products, pooled procurement and distribution of medical product 
in, uh, in regional spaces is now pursued, particularly by regional economic communities, the um, Africa Union and the different uh, uh, regions, including in, in Latin America. Fourth, as long as we don't have a global government, we cannot have a globally centralized decision system. Common goods is about you. It's about collective actions. It's about civil society. It is about power. Financing mechanisms have thus to be grounded in a political space of sovereignty, legal agreements, and collaboration. Common goods cannot be managed by a small public-private partnership somewhere. And last, I think if we have learned anything in our space of global health, is that aid mechanism and the global health architecture are no longer adapted to today's problems that are increasingly global. In this time of climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution and other environmental challenges, COVID-19 is unfortunately the first of many health crises to come in the next decades. So we need to shift. Uh, we need to adjust to the 21st century uh, world. Aid needs to shift from being a purveyor of medical products for short-term cycles, almost as if all development aid is on a humanitarian model, to investing in national institutions, national health and social protection systems, national public health institutions, human capital, particularly human resources for health, for which there is a global shortage. We are we'll maybe missing uh, millions of health workers in the next decades and social uh, protection mechanism. It is really about, about reform and it is about uh, collective action. Thanks. Thank you so much, Agnes. So Kevin, um, Agnes has just said lack of money was not an issue, hasn't been an issue really. And you yourself have um, in some commentary, you've linked the inability of COVAX to deliver enough vaccines to global vaccination targets as you've linked that to an abuse of market power by rich countries and to the domination of markets by companies that prioritize corporate wealth over public health. How how did we get to this? How this how has this has this come to be, and how can this asymmetry uh, be overcome going forward? Thank thank you, Francesca. And I, if I may, I just wanted to say uh, start by saying a huge thank you to Emma and the team at ODI and to Christian Aid for this incredibly important piece of work because I I do think we're in danger at the moment of acting as though this crisis is over, and it's clearly not over for very large parts of the world. And I think also reviewing what has been achieved as a study in international cooperation, which I, I think is what the Christian Aid framework is trying to do, I, I, I think is so important because this pandemic, in some fundamental ways, you know, it was about many things, but it was it, it was partly about how we value the life of others. So there was an ethical imperative to cooperating in the right way on this. There was clearly an epidemiological imperative because of the risks associated with new variants and so on. And there was a self-interested economic imperative. So if ever there was a case for deep international cooperation, this was it. 
And I think if there is a positive story that comes out of the pandemic, it is that an architecture was created very early on with the three pillars of ACT, uh, the ACT-A system, which Emma outlined, of which one was COVAX. And the ambition was the right one. The, the remit was the right one to pull resources in order to get vaccines to where they were needed swiftly in order to save lives. Now, what went wrong? Uh, so I, I would say there are three or four really critical parts of this. In the first phase of COVAX, uh, the, the problem, as Anya said, it, it wasn't a lack of money. This was the, the only fully funded pillar of the whole ACT-A system. Rich countries put in around $2 billion initially in order to purchase uh, vaccines for low-income countries. They then priced or they then pushed COVAX out of the market. And they did that by essentially purchasing or taking out options on vastly more vaccines than they needed for their own populations. To give a figure, by September 2021, rich countries um, had sufficient stocks or options on vaccines not only to vaccinate 80% of their populations fully, and this is 80% above the age of 12, by the way, and provide a booster to vulnerable populations, but they were also sitting on a surplus over and above that of almost 3 billion doses. Now, you, th this was hoarding a vital medicine with the potential to save lives. That was indefensible. The opportunity to correct that design flaw and that abuse of market power in COVAX was the G7 summit um, in June 2021. And perhaps inevitably, given the government that was hosting that summit, that opportunity was wasted. And instead, what the G7 decided to do was to start filtering their surplus supplies into the market in the form of donations, often on a very uncoordinated basis. So many doses were wasted. Uh, in many cases, the donations came way after the date that they stipulated they, they would be arriving. So the donation model didn't work. We're in a situation now where I think the constraint is less on the supply side. You know, we have, uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're nearing our 12 billionth vaccine now. There's more than enough supply capacity in the world. The constraint is on the delivery side. And there are key parts of the ACT-A architecture which are now underfunded and are preventing delivery. I think we'll come back to that, Francesca, in a later discussion. I did, I did want to add one final point in all of this, is that the role of pharmaceutical companies can't be overstated. You know, we had one company, jo Johnson & Johnson, which in the midst of uh, the pandemic in Southern Africa was exporting vaccines to Europe. That was indefensible. An attempt by the South African government to correct that with an export prohibition was countered in, in very stringent terms by the European Union, who actually threatened trade sanctions. And we now have pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and others 
that are reaping windfall gains and converting those gains either into corporate profit or into shareholder payouts at a time when we've got funding gaps in the in the Act A pillar. Uh, so that is wrong. It should be corrected by windfall tax on pharmaceutical companies, in my view. But the, the overall story here, I, I think, is one of um, a failure of rich country governments to correct abuses of market power, actually abuses that they were themselves responsible for, and a failure of corporate governance, which uh, Peter Singer and others in the WHO have addressed. Thanks, Francesca. I'll leave it uh, at that for now. Thank you, Kevin. Um, following on to, you know, from the point of abuses of market power, Rob, I wanted to turn to you around the, the mechanism, the question of vaccine technology transfers um, uh, to two lower and middle income countries. One uh, often cited mechanism is a waiver on intellectual property relating to, to COVID vaccines, the so-called um, TRIPS agreement. And we've seen even in the past few days, some developments there, but we wanted to hear more from you really about why has it been so difficult to reach any consensus on this? Uh, does the, some of the latest developments and compromises um, indicate a, a, a desired or, or you know, progressive way forward? Thank you very much indeed, Francesca. And it's it's definitely part of the problem, part of the jigsaw that needs to be sorted out. And and uh, I mean, it's well over Rob, a year over ago. To you. Oh, am I am I muted? Can you hear me? You're fine. Yeah, we can hear you now. Thank you. Oh, great. Sorry about that. Uh, that the uh, it's well over a year ago now that the the whole vaccine inequity uh, crisis was being flagged. Uh, by the Secretary General of the United Nations when, when, when he said that science was succeeding and solidarity was failing. So it's been a long-standing problem, this, that we, we could see coming down the line. And um, over the, the following months, um, in sort of the spring last year, we had the production of the report by the IPPPR that was sort of chaired by Helen Clark and uh, President Johnson Sirleaf. And they presented to the, uh, the G7 at the summit that uh, Kevin was was mentioning, crystal clear recommendations about you know what should be done to overcome this problem, and, th and there were the three aspects of that. You know, first of all, immediately sharing surplus vaccines. It was it was blatantly obvious that the the, the rich countries had run off with most of the vaccines, and therefore not enabling Act A to, to purchase the ones that were needed for the rest of the world. Uh, secondly, to provide serious additional financing to all aspects uh, of the, the ACT Accelerator. So not just dealing with vaccines, but therapeutics and, and tests as well. And then third, this very, very important area of uh, transfer of technologies, recognizing that there was far too much concentration of manufacturing in, in the West. And there were whole parts of the world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, that weren't manufacturing many vaccines at all. And that this imbalance needed to, to change. Um, and the G7 basically did nothing. You know, the, the, there was a, a tokenistic attempt to reallocate uh, vaccines, uh, but even those commitments haven't been met. Um, virtually no additional uh, funding to, to Act A. Um, and on the vaccine transfers, very, very slow progress, you know, so hardly any progress at all. Um, and then things getting kicked into the long grass at the WTO around things like the TRIPS waiver. 
And I think, you're, just like Kevin would say, I think it's really commendable what ODI and Christian Aid are doing, really to sort of score uh, the performance of G20 um, countries against those three, three sort of broad areas about sort of sharing vaccines, financing and uh, the, the transfers issue. And you can see that the scores are, are, are lamentable and, you know, very, very poor. Um, it's a shame that, that Olive hasn't been able to, to, to uh, join us yet because, you know, the, I'd say the one G20 country that I think really has stood out in fighting for a greater solidarity and, and sharing of expertise and is trying to accelerate the production of vaccines in Sub-Saharan Africa is South Africa itself. And President Ramaphosa has been showing tremendous leadership in taking to the WTO uh, firm proposals, you know, for a, a TRIPS waiver that is part of the solution to this problem. Now, some sort of make out that this in itself would solve the problem overnight. It wouldn't because, of course, you know, we need to sort of share the expertise and the information and the trade secrets. There's a lot to um, establishing effective vaccine manufacturing in, in other uh, areas. But it has been the failure of the wealthy countries to do much about this. And, and you know, the, the, clearly this has been to protect the, you know, the vested interests for our pharmaceutical companies and prioritizing the profits of our companies over saving lives around the West, rest of the world. And this is leading to the unnecessary deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. You know, that, that, you know it's undoubtedly the case that the longer this goes on, the, the more people who will die completely unnecessarily. Um, and of course, the economic um, costs associated with this. Um, you know, we had our former chair of Chatham House, Jim O'Neill, saying this was the deal of the century. That it's a, if we were to just raise the fifty billion dollars that was required to to sort out uh, the you know the ending of the pandemic, it would save nine trillion dollars for the world economy. So on so many fronts, you know, we rich countries have been letting down the rest of the world. And, and this was, I think, flagged by the, the Nobel laureates, uh, Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee, who wrote, I think, fairly recently um, that the, the G7 summit last year really represented the low point of the West's response to COVID and, and may go down in history as, as sort of showing a time where the, the West turned its back on, on the developing world. The G20, with its broader membership, one hopes is a, sort of a, a more representative organization that's going to be able to you know fight these causes more effectively um but you know even the g20 um you know last uh, december really didn't act on these things um but i i think you know that the future really has got to be about sort of oh here's olive joining us now which which is olive will be much better to uh, represent what south africa is doing that than, than i've been able to but um yeah so tackling the trips waiver i think is very much part of it um, but um, what we're hearing about sort of the fudge that's being agreed at the moment is so partial, is so restricted that it's very difficult to see how, you know, this, you know, sort of in itself would speed up the transfer of technologies. And, and I, we need to go a lot further and a lot faster if we're really serious about tackling this problem. Thank you, Rob. Um, Olive, welcome. Uh, great, great to see you've managed to to join the the webinar. Can you hear us okay? Yes, I can hear you okay. 
welcome. Have you were you able to follow the initial part, or or have you only just logged on? I've just logged on. There was an emergency that I had to attend to. Sorry about that. Oh, sorry. No, sorry to hear that. And thank you for for still making it for joining us now. If it's all right with you, I will come to you now. We've had an initial uh, discussion uh, on on covering various aspects of financing. Um, uh, and uh, intellectual property sharing and some of the failures uh, of, of political collective action uh, and individual actions of countries involved. We wanted to turn, so, but what I, what I will do is come back to you and, and take a sort of a step back uh, and ask you what, you know, what, what we've heard and has been described as a moral failure for humanity, the, the, the global response to this pandemic in terms of, of health response, and ask you about the role of the, the G20 and of specific G20 member countries, what, what role they've played, uh, and to what extent this, this moral failure um, can be linked to G20 responses. We've already touched upon the role of South Africa specifically, and we can come back to that as well, but we'd love to hear your insights and, and thoughts on this. Okay, no, thank you very much. And my sincerest apologies again for really having an emergency that took me away. But if you think about uh, the G20's political mandate, what it is, you know, around the equitable distribution of medical countermeasures for the COVID-19 pandemic, you, you see that it finds expression in the declaration emanating from the Extraordinary Summit in Saudi Arabia in 2020. You remember that. And amongst the commitments, commitments that were made, they include the global security, solidarity to combat COVID-19. There was just this solidarity which was so strong, you know, among countries to say we are going to deal with this COVID-19 together. There was a global coordination among member states with the non-G20 member states so that they could mobilize the resources and distribute the medical countermeasures and expertise and do it very equitably. There was this feeling that we have to do things together to achieve what we need to do to protect the world. And there was a full support of all collaborative efforts, especially if you think about Act A, which was created as an instrument that is supposed to help to mobilize resources so that we can be able to deal with uh, 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 the whole issues of uh, vaccines, of therapeutics, of diagnostics and health systems you know, support. So that was really a good thing. And that G20 action plan, really meant also to deal with the socioeconomic effects that emanated from COVID-19. Furthermore, there was a commitment to keep trade routes and trade open and preserve the markets. But when the pandemic started, it became clear that sovereign interests and market forces threat threatened this noble agenda that we had. That solidarity that was there was replaced by a shameful maldistribution of vaccines and other medical you know, countermeasures. Now, unfortunately, this inequity persists as just only 20% of Africans have received at least one dose compared to world average of about 64%. And there are reasons why things have turned out the way they, they, they have. There's very little intervention to disrupt the status quo of the vaccine markets. You know, if you put it very simply, the rich nations can buy as many vaccines as they want. With those invested in the vaccines, they, put it in, they are put in front of the queue. And we, from the emerging nations, 
we could only make smaller orders and therefore we're placed at the back of the queue. Nobody worried about us in Africa. That's why today in Africa, you still have about 16% of Africans that are vaccinated you know, against, uh, against COVID. So the rich nations prioritize their citizens and they purchase vaccines. In fact, they hoarded the vaccines way above their, their requirements. They outstrip the availability of manufacturers to, to, to produce fast enough. The manufacturers were put under pressure to produce, produce, produce. And when they produced them, they kept them in their own, own uh, countries and delivering only the excesses for those that you know, still had to wait. In other words, we in the emerging countries, we had to receive you know, the leftovers. So after they've eaten, they've enjoyed everything and whatever is left over at the table, that's when they said, you can take this. That's, you know, really, really, really how they treated us. It was not really the very nice things. Unfortunately, let me say that um, the, the, the G20 themselves could no longer agree at a political level with regard to trips. And I, I heard that you already had a very good discussion, you know, with regard to the trips. So I'll not go very deeper into that. Safe to say that, there is this agree the, 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 the agreement that uh, the Quad was trying to reach, which no one wants to own now. You know, only EU is really willing to own the decision that has come out, you know, from the Quad. So there were other problems that we saw when the G20 itself, you know, decided to block vaccine exports, which essentially compromised delivery to the COVAX facility. So the most devastating example was the embargo that you know, was, was had with regard to AstraZeneca, who, whose vaccines were produced in India. There was an embargo that you really you could not uh, send the, 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 the vaccines elsewhere. So that caused a lot of delays in so far as COVAX being able to do you know, the work that it was supposed to do. So let me put it this way to say that as far as we're concerned, we have to raise resources to be able to make sure that there are enough resources, not only to provide vaccines, which are uh, plentiful now, but uptake has become very, very poor because people have now seen Omicron, it has come through, and then people say, well, you're not dying, so why should you get vaccinated? If we had received vaccines right at the beginning with everybody, I'm sure our vaccine levels could have been much higher than it is. But we need to raise money still for all, for diagnostics, for therapeutics, and for treatment, you know, to treat people, the services that are needed in order to be able to treat people. We really need to have resources, you know, to, uh, to do that. I'm going to stop right there and not go too deep because of the fact that you really still need to be asking questions and I'm late. I don't know whether what I'm saying is actually uh, delaying you in terms of your program or not. But thank you so much. No, Olive, thank you. And, and your comments are completely spot on and, and, and um, in, in line with the questions we are, we're asking. So thank you very much. And I wanted to follow on from your points uh, around vaccine hoarding, uh, which was also raised by, by previous speakers, blockages and delays in sharing vaccinations. And come back to you, Kevin, around, you know, this has been described and, and discussed in terms of a, of a failure of collective action what are the political what have been the political obstacles to 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 this to a fairer sharing um and where do we go politically uh forward yeah it's such a difficult question to answer isn't it because 
at one level, the most obvious failing can be summarized in two words, which is political leadership. You, you, you know, the, the, there were opportunities that uh, Rob uh, has mentioned at the G7 that, that weren't taken. And I think with bold leadership, they, they could have been taken. And, you know, this was, I you know, I believe crying out for senior figures in the G7 and the G20 to look at the problem in a non-partisan way and say, you know, we're facing a, a common threat here because if we allow the development of new variants in other parts of the world, they, they will come back. Some of them will go under the radar of existing vaccines. So this does pose a threat to our own citizens. We, we clearly have a market which is skewing allocation in ways that are not only profoundly inequitable and unjust, but also inefficient. And there would have been an attempt to allocate supply against need. And in a sense, Agnes used the word market failure before. You know, in a sense, it wasn't market failure. You know, this this was markets doing what markets can do if they're not properly regulated. It was an abuse of market power in a market where there is no effective countervailing force to monopolistic behavior, actually. So that, that was the underlying um, problem. Now, you know, if you wanted to go to the next level down, you know, I, I always, you know, when people use the word failure of political leadership to explain away a problem, you know, it always sounds a little bit superficial because all problems can be solved with proper political leadership. I, I think the specific set of challenges that emerge here are, are partly around the emergence of vaccine nationalism in an environment where many G7, G20 countries are effectively governed by right-leaning populist nationalists. And, you know, the one thing that populist nationalists know how to play is citizen security. And I'm afraid, you know, that, that was used to explain away the hoarding of the UK government, the US government, many other G20 governments, some of the behaviours that Olive um, was mentioning as well. I, I think another aspect of failure is, is in the multilateral system because, you know, we ended up with a structure that could have worked, actually. And I, I think the way that Olive explained the origins of the Act A structure you know, I think this was a genuine attempt to put in place an architecture, a multilateral architecture, which did correspond to the ethical challenge, the economic challenge, and the epidemiological challenge. But unfortunately, be, you know, because of weak leadership, not in the multilateral system, where I think, you know, we've seen exemplary leadership from the WHO, for example, in many areas, but in, in the behavior of powerful countries, it undermined the very system that had been created. And, you know, in it, and as a result, it really fragmented. So we ended up with COVAX. We ended up with uh, AVAT in Africa. 
you know, pursuing similar goals, we ended up with very fragmented funding structures with the IMF and the World Bank um, coming in. So, I, you know, I, I think there's not one single point of political failure, Francesca, that, that one can point to, but there were systemic political failures, um, which I think were magnified by the weaknesses of the multilateral architecture. Um, and and that's where the, the key lessons are that have to be learned. Thank you, Kevin. Um, Agnes, I wanted to come back to you and to something you, you mentioned in your initial remarks um, around the need really for a shift in aid and movement away from what is often shorter terms or almost humanitarian type response towards a different way of Fund, financing and funding, and, and uh, particularly if we were serious about stepping up pandemic preparedness and, and, and future responses to future um, health crises. Could you perhaps elaborate a bit more around what types of investment and financing mechanisms are, are needed? Also, in, in, you know, if the objective is to strengthen national health systems, as you mentioned, as a priority really going forward, what, what what types of investments and mechanisms do do we need? Thanks. I mean, I of course this is the this is the key question, right? And I'm not pretending to have um, all the answers, but clearly I would agree with um, with what's been said before about the collective failure, and I do think it is a collective failure. It is a It's a failure, um, certainly of G7 countries, but it's also a failure of the uh, global health uh, architecture. And uh, the key reason is to um, that we have a global health architecture that is oriented towards development aid. And um, when a global health problem emerged that was affecting all countries in the world, there was no global health architecture that was prepared for that. Everything was geared towards uh, providing uh, relief uh, and assistance to uh, low-income and low-middle-income countries. There was, the system was not adapted uh, to uh, um, a world in which all countries in the world were facing the same problem, had to respond in a coordinated way, and, uh, and had to tackle a common problem. And I think it's a, it's a major issue um, to have the confusion that has taken place between the issue of the commons, which is we all have the same problem, and the issue of equity. It's a different problem with different solutions. The issue of the commons is about exactly responding to the, 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 the market failures, which definition is that markets don't work. And this is what You've been saying, right? These markets did not work. No, they don't. They haven't worked. But markets haven't worked, but the public authorities collectively have not worked either. So we 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 face a situation if we had both market failures and public failures. So the question is where do we rebuild the commons? And very clearly, the way Historically, we are addressing this is through government. But when we have a global problem, we don't have a global government. 
So we don't know how to address that. And the uh, different institutions we've been creating in global health are institutions that were geared towards development aid. They were not geared towards addressing a, a global problem. And, and they were not designed that way. And the point I was making is, is the problem with ACTA is that it, it's, um, its goal are largely, immensely beyond what it is capable of doing. So we also have an institutional problem. You cannot have one central institution that is not um, backed by um, a public commitment that is global that will handle financing, procurement, selection of, of the portfolio, distribution, allocation, that that was just not possible. And that's been the, the when, when uh, the retrospective analysis of what happened with ACTA is just that is not just possible. And this is why what we see emerging, and, and it's really great to hear Olive about that, is we need reform. And part of this reform is to empower the countries that were not able to express their voice in the current system. And that means, and we see it emerging in the Africa Union, we see it emerging with AVAT, we see it emerging with the commitment of many African countries, but not only, we see it also in Latin America, we see it in Asia, to actually develop now their manufacturing capacity of medical product to respond to, to, um, to crisis and develop their financing capacity by having Thanks. regional and mechanisms, right? So we, we need to move to spaces of sovereignty, spaces of, of collective action and collective financing that are backed up by sovereignty, by, uh, by common and collective action. And we need to get out of the model of global health where it is a development aid model in which we give 0.2% of global spending on health, 0.2% that we give to, um, to health aid and hope that by with this 0.2%, it's gonna affect the 99.8% of the market. That's not gonna work. And the, the only way forward is to really get back to uh, those spaces of, of, of sovereignty and to go back to collective public action. Now, at global level, how can it express itself today in a world that in which uh, genuine global collaboration is not the, it's not the, the what is happening right now? Uh, goodwill in global multilateral institution is not what is happening now. Um, it's rebuilding the collective action bottom-up and, and within regions and at global level developing mechanisms that uh, provide incentives and provide support to poor countries to be able to invest in their national institutions and in their national um, both production and procurement capacity for, for, for services. So what we need to move towards is some kind of global mechanism uh, from 
finance, strong financial institutions that have uh, a deep purse that can provide incentives uh, for uh, all countries to invest in their in their public health and in their institutions. Thank you, Agnes. And, and I wanted to follow on this point specifically as concerns um, COVAX. Olive, coming back to you, we, so we're hearing about the ways in which COVAX hasn't worked and their arguments that, that, that point to the, the mechanism itself being fundamentally flawed. Uh, what do you see as the future of COVAX? Um, are there ways for it going forward to, to, to address the challenges that have been encountered to date, you know, challenges to, to put it mildly. I mean, the, the result being that led, you know, that the aid recipient countries being at the at the very end of the back of the vaccination queue or, or something different, a different mechanism altogether needed. No, clearly different mechanisms are needed. And this is what, what the answer is from um, the Africa Union, right? Who created its own mechanism. Uh, with AVAT, who is creating its, its, its African architecture. And uh, what is needed is clearly uh, reconstructing the system bottom-up uh, with regional economic communities, with uh, spaces of sovereignty. We've seen during the crisis, there was some positive uh, collective action uh, movements during the crisis. And that's been the European Union countries agreeing on joint uh, on pooling and joint purchasing. That was not given at the beginning, but it did happen. And why did it happen? Because the European Union has a long history of institutional construction. And we've seen also during the crisis, the AU and the Africa CDC emerge and the leadership of South Africa uh, being absolutely essential. And it is because there has been a history of institutional construction of the Africa Union. We need those space of collaboration. And right now, those space of collaboration, uh, what has emerged from the crisis is they've been emerging at regional level. Um, and, um, and we've seen that there are regional issues. When, when Africa does the entire continent of Africa, which is more than 1 billion people, uh, imports 90, more than 95% of its vaccine and doesn't have uh, a production capacity of vaccine of, of medical products. It is a huge failure of global supply chains. It's a huge failure of, uh, of markets. And that's what governments need to address. They need to reinvest that space and understand exactly what, uh, and, 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 and start tackling what exactly you've been saying, that uh, markets have been uh, really um, working for some and not for all. Thank you, Agnes. And, and so the same question over to you, um, Olive. So from the South Africa perspective, uh, coming back to, you know, what do we need an alternative mechanism to, to COVAX and, and where is that going? Yeah, I think, am I on? Oh, okay. I think we have to take a balanced view here. With the benefit of hindsight, uh, the COVAX initiative, was a, it was the first time the world came together to use the power of pooling to overcome market force impediments in a bid to distribute vaccines equitably. So that was the thinking that was there at the time. 
And let me also say that um, COVAX, as you know, is one of the pillars of uh, Act A. And Act A itself, it's really a group of 33 countries out of all of the countries in the world, which is too small really to be able to have a massive impact. And through COVAX, despite all of that, through COVAX, there's been quite a lot that has been achieved in terms of the FDA agencies delivering more than 1 billion vaccine doses and 200 million tests and 25 million steroids and oral antivirals, and also putting in $500 million worth of PPE so that they could enhance equitable access to COVID-19 tools. That's still not enough, but we can say that if you look at from January 2022, 82% of the total supply of vaccines to low and income, middle income countries were through COVAX. And over 80% of tests that were performed in more than 20 low income countries were delivered through A agencies. So initially, you know, COVID had a target of vaccinating 20% of the world's population. Now, of course, it has aligned itself with an impossible target of WHO saying that 70% you know, of the world must have been vaccinated by June this year. That's not even feasible. We know that. Now, on the issue of the merits of pool procurement, there's no doubt that COVAX itself was and remains a necessary mechanism it, which it was built on the work of Gavi, of UNICEF and others. For decades, they've used pooling to purchase vaccines on behalf of low and middle income countries who would otherwise not have adequate access to vaccines. Another example that we should talk about is uh, the successful pooling mechanism of the Pan American Health Organization, which is a subsidiary of WHO that uses pooling to purchase vaccines you know, for South America. Now, pooling proved to be highly beneficial for the AU region. During the chairship of um, uh, 2020, the AU chairship of 2020, where President Ramaphosa launched the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Task Team and Trust and used it as a pooling mechanism to acquire vaccine to the continent, the AVAT has secured half of Africa's needs. Now, the AU has now endorsed the recommendation to permanently install AVAT as an AU pool procurement mechanism for Africa's vaccine needs. So there's an alternative for us in terms of COVAX to have AVAD. Now on the political commitment, as I previously alluded to in apparent that the political will needs to be accompanied by binding instruments that are going to compel sovereign nations and the business sector to commit to extraordinary concessions that ensure equitable distribution of medical countermeasures, especially during a health emergency. Now, COVID's main challenges, both extraneous as well as endogenous, they include the AstraZeneca embargo in India, which I talked about, and Novavax's inability to manufacture fast enough, the underinvestment into health system strengthening pillar, turning, in other words, turning vaccines into vaccinations, that it has failed dismally. It could not compete with the rich nations and it was in the middle of the queue. Nobody really cared about them, you know, except when they had taken care of their own needs. Now in focusing on mass, it relied on a narrow range of affordable products, 
when this product could not be produced, COVID exposed itself to a supply crisis. Now, COVID can and should continue to play a role in the intermediate and short term. COVID can continue to play a role even if there is a supply flush by negotiating lower prices for larger columns, volumes. In addition, it can invest more in the last mile necessary to make gains so that we can try to you know, move towards the targets, the global targets that has been set. It can also set to help coordinate the donations better and ensure that there are rules of fair and timely distribution. In the future, I hope COVAX can successfully continue, but it will need to adapt and include a broad range of products necessary to tackle global threats. Among other things, of course, COVAX can be supported by inculcating the support of its functions into the IMB, that is the WHO IMB led led agreement and the financial modality that is being negotiated through the G20-led process. So I'm just going to stop there and say that, you know, we really need to make sure that we include in these discussions the dialogue with civil society so that we can understand the lived experience of the target populations. So I'll stop right there and say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Olive. Um, Rob, I wanted to turn to you on the question of, well, any potential here for for strengthening of domestic health financing mechanisms and, and systems, right? I mean, do, do you see the crisis and the, and the crisis response, including the, the sort of some of the global efforts that have been made to date, uh, holding any potential for increases or adjustments to domestic health financing that would support uh, strengthening of systems and, and, and moves towards more universal health coverage. Um, what are your views on that? And how might the G20 efforts support a, a shift in that direction? Yes, I do. And, I, and I'd like to sort of have a, an optimistic sort of point of view here. And, and, you know, just go back to something that Kevin was saying that, you know, I think we were spectacularly unlucky as a world that this crisis came along where we had such a cohort of, of right wing nationalist leaders who, who failed so, so miserably, both with the, their own populations and the global response. You know, when you had a president of the United States who was trying to defund WHO, and, and undermine it and, and telling its own population to inject themselves with bleach. I mean, quite quite extraordinary. But but the good news is I think that these leaders are now being found out. And and you know, the way that, you know, there's this classic thing about how do you, you know, generate political commitment, how do you bring about change? Well, the good thing about democracies is is you vote these people out of power. And this is exactly what's happening. And so President Trump was the first to go, you know, sort of partly because of his COVID response. Um, it's likely that President Bolsonaro is going to go the same way in Brazil now and, and going to be replaced with someone much more sort of progressive and, and thinking about providing universal health coverage. And of course, we're looking here in the UK as well, where um, Prime Minister Johnson is fighting for his political life. And, and you know, it's likely to be his COVID response or lack of it that could be it could undermine him as well. So, um, you know, we are seeing electorates now sort of seeing through this, you know, right wing rhetoric and, and you know, having been let down. And um, I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, one of the best ways that, that um, politicians with a different point of view can can uh, depose these types of people is through promoting universal health. 
And, you know, that if you look throughout history, the numbers of times that, that uh, universal health reforms have come out of crises. Uh, you've just got to look at the, you know, the UK, Japan and, and France, where Anya says, you know, that, that our universal health systems came out of the rubble of the Second World War. Uh, Thailand's great universal health system came after a financial crash at the turn of the century. Um, you know, we, we have seen that, that smart politicians have recognized that at times of great crisis, one of the most obvious ways to show a population that you really care about them and then help them, um, both from the perspective of accessing health services, but providing financial protection, which, which people really want, is through universal health reforms. And I think you're seeing a lot of leaders now recognizing this. Um, and I think, you know, the time is right for me uh, to promote this to political leaders. We're seeing people like Prime Minister Imran Khan in Pakistan saying that he wants to launch a welfare state coming out of this crisis, starting with universal health reforms. And uh, President Ramaphosa, of course, in, in, in South Africa, Olive, I can see you nodding there. You know, this is the absolute perfect time for President Ramaphosa to um, launch the, the NHI reforms that have been planned for, for a good number of years in South Africa to bring society together um, to create a, a health system that benefits everyone. So I'm very optimistic that this crisis will create a new generation of universal health reforms. And we at Chatham House are very interested in the political, political economy of health and health reforms and are only too happy to help political leaders and stakeholders who want to try and bring this about. In fact, just earlier on this morning, I was working um, with a group of CSOs looking at about the, the Nigerian elections coming up. And now is the time to be pitching to the people planning to take over from President Buhari that they could be the UHC hero for Nigeria. So I think, you know, watch this space. I think we are going to see this coming a lot in the, in the coming months. Thank you, Rob, and, and your optimism um, is, is well well taken. Uh, I, Emma, I wanted to turn to you to and sort of wind back to to the start and just ask you for some perhaps initial reflections on on what you've heard from the speakers uh, and linking these reflections back to the work that that you, that ODI and Christian Aid have been developing over the last months around essentially issues, not just of identifying what are the factors that are determining, have determined response to date, uh, but then within these different domains of financing, um, um, supplies, sharing and distribution of vaccines, support for, for inter intellectual property sharing and so on. What, what are the, some of the measurement aspects and, and monitoring priorities going forward? Yeah, thank thank you, Francesca. Great question. Um, well, I guess what what I would say is, I will revisit a, a comment I made earlier, which is the extent to which we can measure performance is is only based on on first of all the data available, which which is you know really very lacking. Um, but more broadly, what we are looking at is the extent to which countries can fulfill commitments which are based on the existing architecture. And I think what all of our speakers have raised, um, yeah, without exception really, is that the existing architecture itself is, is in many ways fundamentally flawed and, and needs re rethinking, um, which isn't to downplay the, the importance of measurement. I think it's, it's critically important to uh, 
improve the data that is available to to measure the extent to which countries are are fulfilling the commitments they've made or or should be making um to publicly benchmark their their performance to have some sort of repository where where this data is easily you know available and accessible uh, but i suppose that needs to take place along alongside the much broader issue of of this broader debate about what sort of architecture would lend itself best to uh, to a more equitable distribution. So for me, it's it's highlighted two, two different uh, tasks that we need to take forward. Yeah, lot, lots to do, lots to do going forward. So right. before I hand over, I'd like to introduce um, in, a, in a moment the, the Honorable Dr. John Santamu I, for, for some closing reflections. I wanted to turn to all our speakers and ask you uh, to, to, in one or two minutes, so, uh, give us a final pitch on the, what are the one, maximum two concrete priority steps that need to be taken uh, going forward. Thinking yes of the G20, but possibly within that specifically about the G7 countries. Uh, and we'll, we'll take turns. I'm going to turn first to to Olive. Your your final pitch on the, you know key messages, concrete steps we need to take going forward. Okay. I believe that um, in order for us to be prepared to deal with the pandemics of the future, we have to do two things. One is set up an intermediary fund. We need a fund that is going to finance how we deal with COVID-19 as well as future pandemics. So that you can, first of all, give that 15 billion, uh, 16 billion that is actually needed, billion dollars that's needed for A, that must be available. Number two, open up the process of governance to make sure there's political legitimacy to what the G7 or the G20 wants to do. It must be owned by all the countries. Find a mechanism to make sure everyone can participate equitably. Thank you. Thank you. Rob, over to you. Your, your main pitch. The, the pandemic has just shown beyond all doubt that the world needs true, genuine, universal health coverage. And, and you know, now is the time to be promoting this to our political leaders and telling them loud and clear because it brings obvious health, economic and political benefits. And now some of those things can be done nationally. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, there have been huge gaps in, in, in coverage exposed at all income levels, including our own. So we need to sort out our own health systems. But there are some things that we need to do collectively at a multilateral level. And again, we should be demanding of our leaders that they do that so the world achieves universal health coverage. Thanks, Rob. Agnes, over to you. Thank you. I think I'll, I'll, I'll say two things that echo what, what Oliver has said. I think the First is that we need to um, profoundly transform the aid architecture. So we shift away from uh, short-term measures to purchase uh, commodities uh, on short-term cycles to actually investing in public health institutions and investing in human resources for health at country level. It really has to be an investment in health systems, uh, in strong health systems everywhere towards universal coverage, as, as um, 
as said by Rob. Um, it's a major shift. We cannot continue um, to fund uh, these, um, these short-term uh, commodity-focused uh, actions that actually lead to substitution and decrease of domestic funding on health. It's a huge issue. And second, I'll really join Olive on the need for a global uh, financing facility, but that financing facility needs to leverage other funding. 16 billion is much too small to, to affect the market forces that uh, are huge. We're 80% of spending on health comes from high income countries. 40% comes from the USA. We need to have a mechanism that provides um, matching funding to countries to invest in public health institutions. And I think probably a first step of that is, is the fifth that is going to be uh, created at the World Bank, but it needs to be broader and it needs to be a matching grant to provide incentives to countries to invest in, in, in public health institutions. Emma, over to you. Thanks, Francesca. Um, I would just make two quick comments. The first is revisiting this, this theme of measuring how the extent to which countries have met their existing um, commitments. In terms of intellectual property or more accurately promoting the regional uh, production of manufacturing, um, we tend to focus on, on TRIPS waiver, which is, of course, critically important, but it's also because there are many other um, policies and commitments that are needed to promote regionally dispersed manufacturing. We, we don't have any systematic way of tracking them, and therefore, I think they tend to fall, um, you know, fall out of sight. And so I think that's a critical area for efforts focused on um, improving the, the data available to, to focus on. And secondly, I just wanted to go back to Rob's point um, about state fragility being being an important catalyst for change, which um, it reminds me of analysis the colleagues and I did a few years ago, which was looking at, at 50 countries' movements towards universal health care. And we found that in about 70% of cases, it was episodes of fragility that, that prompted that initial shift. So um, yeah, it does seem a, a critically uh, important moment to, to move in that direction. Thank you. Kevin, your final pitch. Thanks, Francesca. Well, I, echoing some of what has already been said, I'd, I'd make three brief points. The, so I think, first of all, what the pandemic has done, apart from the suffering that it's caused, it's, it's really acted as an X-ray on the underlying inequalities that characterize so many health systems around the world. And so I, I think, Rob, is right. Universal health coverage has to be part of the response to this. I, I have to say, when I was working for Save the Children, one of the things uh, we focused on a lot was shortages of oxygen for the treatment of childhood pneumonia. Now, you know, oxygen is such a fundamental part of any health system, but it's, for much of the world, it's either unavailable or inaccessible or unaffordable. You know, that's like a very small illustration of why we need universal health coverage um, to, to be deepened and strengthened. I, I think secondly, uh, you know, uh, 
we have an incredibly articulate spokesperson from South Africa, and I wouldn't presume to speak on behalf of Africa or any other developing country. But if I were a citizen in Africa, I would be loath to rely on the charity and the goodwill of the G7 and the G20 after this episode. And I think there is really no alternative but to strengthen self-reliance in vaccine development, um, genomic uh, technologies and so on. It's not just about intellectual property rights. It's about building the whole ecology of the system and the skills and the competencies that are, are needed to build self-reliance in those areas. And the, the final point I would make is that for all of the imperfections of Act A, it's the best vehicle that we've got right here and now to address some very immediate challenges. Um, Olive made the point that there is still a very large funding gap. It's around 15, uh, it's around 15 billion. And we also need to address this deficit. You, you know, we have new antivirals coming on stream from Pfizer, Paxlovid. It's marketed, I think, for $300 or $400 in the US. That ought to be available in countries with low immunization rates where the risks of, of getting the disease are so high. Yet that is another market issue uh, about the uh, concentration of market power that I think has to be addressed through the Act A system. Thanks, Francesca. Thank you, Kevin. So I'd, I'd um, like to turn now to the Right Honorable Sentamu for his remarks. Over to you, Dr. Sentamu. I can't hear you. I don't think you're muted, but we don't hear you. We still don't hear you. I wonder whether, David, you have any advice on what we can do to adjust the audio. It might be that the headset is not plugged in properly. Yeah. Dr. Sintamo, perhaps you could try uh, taking off the headset and see if the, just the mic works. Mm. Still not working. Let's see, is he restarting? Sorry about this. Let's see if we're able to get him back on with audio. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you very well now. 
You can the hear floor me. Is... Well, I have to reboot and start again. Sorry about that. That's absolutely <laughs> anyway, fine. We are, booked to, we, we, we are booked to end at uh, 12.30, so I won't be that long. Uh, I just wanted to thank you, Francesca, for being a good moderator to allow the amazing voices that have come out of Emma, Agnes, Kevin, uh, Rob, and Olive. Um, and I'm also very glad that Christian Aid has been working with Audi to produce what has been produced. And I've got four things to say. Um, the first is that um, we're very grateful that Audi allowed us to do this uh, launching of our COVID vaccine equity index to remind governments, particularly those in G20 countries, that they actually can do much more uh, to improve COVID vaccine equity around the world. And also the index is very important because it has exposed the hollowness of the mantra that one, no one is safe from COVID-19 until we're all safe. Uh, this idea is actually being jeopardized and delayed by self-creating policies of richer countries and many others. The example I've got is that of the credit crunch of 2008 when the world led by Gordon Brown decided to recapitalize the banks as a global question and a global challenge. Unfortunately, when Kevin came, uh, he really wanted to say this should be uh, a global coordinated experience and not each country trying to do its own thing. So COVID for me, because it's pandemic, because it's global, it still requires the global coordination and that coordination has actually failed in many ways. Unless we do it and improve it, we're not going to get anywhere. I want to thank the scientists who developed the vaccinations uh, in such an amazing time. But there's another bigger uh, challenge coming, uh, waiting in the wings. And it is the challenge of antibiotics. Uh, I am patron of the Biotic Society which is working very, very hard that the present antibiotics are going to reach a stage where they cannot treat the diseases that are available because uh, the bacteria have regrouped and they're fighting an amazing battle, partly because of our overuse of antibiotics. But nevertheless, that is going to be um, a, a, really, a really difficult difficult stuff when it hits uh, all of us. So that will need, again, global attention and global dealing with it. Thirdly, I think it's a question now of decolonization. That is beginning to work with and, and, and in partnership and not doing things to people because it is still in our global village, a mentality of treating the poor as if they're the people we do things to instead of doing things with and in partnership. That actually needs to happen. Um, one of my predecessors, William Temple, said that you judge uh, a nation by the way it treats the poor and the vulnerable. If you judge that global village today, the way we've treated the, the poor and the vulnerable is dreadful. And therefore, we can't all have ticks as nation of the world. Fourthly, for me, this is a question of a moral imperative. It's not just a question of um, social sciences. So, yeah, 
you know, dealing with the pandemic, yes, it is a sociological problem, but I want to suggest at the heart of it as well is a moral question. It is ask the question, and who is my neighbor? Anybody in my global village who has got COVID-19 uh, is my neighbor, and I cannot look the other way. Of course, Jesus' story of um, the Samaritan who picked up a man who was beaten by, um, you know, was set upon by robbers, and the priest goes the other way, the Levite goes the other way, and only the unexpected um, person who did not fit in society is the one who cares for somebody. And Jesus said, that is the neighbor. That actually is a good neighbor. Could we all be neighbors to one another? I, for myself, am not uh, my brother's keeper. I am my brother's brother. And when my brother and my sister are in need, it's my responsibility to try and care for them. So friends, this gathering today is asking us to challenge the language that is around and remind particularly the richer nations, the banks were in a terrible way. Only a global dealing with question of recapitalization is what saved the banks. But you see, we're dealing with human life. I know money is a means of exchange. Money is not a good in itself. And because it's a means of exchange, people should actually sit very lightly on this, but be committed to human beings. Human beings, whenever I see the face of a man, a woman, a child, they are the faces of God for me, and therefore not to care and be concerned, actually in the end means that we're not uh, rejoicing in the sort of people that we are. So I want to thank you, and we should continue the challenging um, our nations, but also asking that this is a global problem and it will not be resolved unless there is a global attention to this particular reality. And I hope we'll be able to move ahead with policies that actually will increase vaccine production according uh, across all the nations. And there will be no more hoarding. There will be no more almost an arrogance of suggesting, oh, we've done better in vaccination when actually most of the people who ought to be vaccinated and in Scotland were shown that the poor and the weak and the vulnerable were the ones that had it worst. Why don't we learn the lesson that actually to care for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable? There is a real self-interest, but more than that, there is a greater dignity when we lift everybody out of poverty and realize that this is a global village no longer just nations competing with one another. And one final thought. We need to spare thoughts for Ukraine. Can you imagine what's happening to those who had COVID and for those who at the moment cannot get any treatment? It is our responsibility too. Thank you very much. Dr. Sentamu, thank you. Thank you very much for your, for your inspiring words and call to action. Uh, thank you. And, and I'd like to extend the thanks to, to all our speakers, really, to this fantastic panel um, for, for all your contributions and, and food for thought. Um, thank you also to the audience that, that has tuned in. Um, and, and a special word of thanks to Christian Aid, uh, colleagues at Christian Aid and at ODI that are 
continuing to work on this matter, uh, including, uh, as, we've, as we've heard, around the issues of monitoring, uh, measurement, and holding um, governments and others into account. We really hope that, that this conversation, at a very minimum, has uh, reinforced the point that this crisis is not over. Uh, as, as Kevin warned us all at the very beginning, uh, we, we need to continue to be uh, focusing on these matters uh, and, and working together uh, for, for fairer and, and more equitable uh, policy going forward. Thank you all so much uh, for, for tuning in. The event, the recording of the event will be made available online. And again, I invite you also to please refer to and, and, and use the the reports and data that uh, and, and policy recommendations that are coming out of the uh, ODI and Christian Aid collaboration. Thank you and goodbye.